Um, all right, we're starting a new series today called Empowered. And let me just kind of lead you into why we're doing this and where we're headed next. Uh, for the last year, we have been somewhat on an introspective journey as we have uh, looked to seek God and to understand growing faithfully, understanding Him, knowing Him, walking with Him in a very interpersonal way with ourselves. And so we, we kind of began that process with a couple of series. One was for the love. The next one was messy love. What happens when loving people gets messy? Because it does. Jesus would love people even when it would get messy. He called us to do the same. Um, we spent a lot of time in parables, just looking at the secret teachings of Jesus through parables. And that is so crucial to understand the heart of Christ, which is why we read scripture. So understand the heart of God and what does that mean for us and how do we live um, within that. Uh, we, talk, we went through a series called Simple. And so I asked you, I challenged you to begin making some changes within your life that would give you the opportunity to have margin for something God would want to do within you. And there are a lot of areas that we, mar- we need margin in our lives. And most people do not have any margin. You don't have any margin financially. You don't have any margin with your schedule. You don't have any margin emotionally. You don't have any margin physically. You are, you are running right at the edge on everything. And eventually, you're going to give out. And the call to simple is the call to recognizing what is most important and following Christ through that. We spent several weeks in symbols. And I hope what you got in symbols... Uh, was not just, uh, oh, that's neat. I, I didn't know that about that thing, whatever it be, the tabernacle, the prayer shawl, the rainbow, whatever. I didn't know that. That is not the takeaway I hope you had. I hope the takeaway you had was God has been working consistently through all history to bring us to the place of restoring us to, to how he created us to be. I hope that you saw that through symbols and that you will continue to do that. I want you to know that you are loved, that God is gracious and accepting, that we do not have to be perfect in order to come before him, and we don't have to put on airs to pretend to be something that we're not. We need to be exactly who we are before God, and he loves us regardless. But I also want you to know that God created you for more, than a pur- more of a purpose than just walking through life, just getting from one point to the next. He created you for more than a purpose of just trying to survive. Uh, A few weeks ago, I talked about contemplative prayer and the reality that contemplative prayer is the process of constantly being in prayer with God, which seems uh, difficult, right? It seems difficult to pray without ceasing. It seems difficult to give thanks for everything. It seems difficult to, to praise Him without end, but that's what we're called to, and Part of contemplative prayer is constantly having Jesus on our mind and being drawn to the place that he wants us to be, becoming more like him and leading other people to do the same. But you are loved wherever you are. God doesn't want you to stay there. He doesn't want you just to stay in a place where you are just feeling good about God or feeling good about yourself. God has a purpose for you. And as we go through this, I want you to see that you are given great power within your life. And yet when I talk to people, rarely when I ask somebody, what's Jesus doing in your life? I rarely, if ever, hear someone say, I feel like he is empowering me. And yet scripture talks about it over and over again, that he is empowering us. And it's so easy in today's culture where where we all are, uh, can be self-effacing and we all can kind of sit back. And I tell you, there's a complex to be a martyr in today's culture that is grasped by so many. And it is 
fatal to your soul. Because God has empowered us to be victors. So as we go through this series, I'm going to be challenging you on several things within your small groups. Those of you who are going through, uh, following with our sermons and going deeper in discussion about those, you're going to be talking about these more than just conceptually. But what is God doing within your life? What is he calling you to? And between now and Father's Day, we're going to be spending time talking about this. Next week, we're going to be talking about what happens when you feel empty. And I thought, well, maybe we should start with that because a lot of people feel empty. But I don't want to do that. First, let's lay the groundwork for what he's calling you to, and then let's talk about how do we get there. So we're going to be going through lots of different topics over the next few weeks, and and I want you to stay, and I want you to be here. Typically within the church calendar, after Easter passes, so does attendance. (laughs) And so right now, churches are scrambling to figure out a way to get you to come and sit in these seats. And I just want to say this, don't come and sit in the seat just to sit in the seat. Okay? But be here, be engaged, and see what God wants to do within your life and within your heart. Okay, What he's also going to do is teach you and show you and empower you how to change the world around you. And that's what we are called to. When we look through scripture, it's, a, it's, it's pretty critical to understand what Jesus wants from us, isn't it? I mean, there are some things we get. If you know the gospel, you get Jesus wants us to be repentant. He wants us to be humble. He wants us to be thankful. He wants us to praise him. But there's a part of following Jesus that we cannot follow him casually or carefully. He calls us to all or nothing, literally. I want you all in or I want you to know you're all out. I don't want you to be a little in and a little out. And the reason that there are so many frustrated people in their faith is because we're trying to navigate this world and we're trying to have these experiences and and be able to do all these things in a culture that is not what God wants for us. And so if we're kind of in following Jesus and we're kind of out following Jesus, then we're going to be frustrated. Now, I am not over these next few weeks going to give you a thing that I want you to do because we are going to be talking about vision. We are going to be talking about being motivated. And usually when a pastor starts doing that, he, he has a purpose. He has a goal, right? I'm going to, I'm going to uh, reveal some new program. We're going to go build a building, which we're not. You know, I, listen, I don't have a thing, an agenda here. Because part of being the body of Christ is we each individually have to hear from God and in faith we have to pursue what he tells us. If we are going to be the church as the New Testament talks about, it is not about one person setting the agenda for everyone else. It's about us all hearing from God and moving in the direction for which God calls us. When we do that, God is a God who knows what he's doing. And he will bring them together for a common purpose for us as a community. So I'm going to be asking you to dream big. I'm going to be asking you to think big. And I'm going to be asking you to take risks. Some of those risks, God's going to have to define within you. But I want you to stay with us on this path. And I want you to understand that if you are not living a life empowered by the Holy Spirit, you are not yet living. Two places in Scripture, Jesus talks about faith and that he's amazed at what he sees. Did you know that? We begin with Luke chapter 7. If you've got your Bible, we're going to jump around a little bit, but not a whole lot. Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 2. This is an incredible story. I want you to listen for the part where Jesus was amazed. All right? At the time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. 
When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. And if anyone deserves your help, he does, they said. For he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. In other words, we have a pagan, a Roman uh, leader who is not a friend to Jews typically, saying, I've got someone in my employ that is sick and hurting, and yet he loves you. And I'm asking for your help. So Jesus went with him, but just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I am not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. Jesus is amazed at great faith. Now, the faith of this particular officer was a faith that said, I recognize you are who you say you are. You can do what you say you can do. I have heard about the miracles. I believe that you can just say a word and it will happen. You don't have to come and I don't have to bring him to you. And because of that great faith and what Jesus could do, he was healed. And Jesus, consider this, of a Roman officer, not a Jew, maybe he's some level of believer, we don't know exactly what, Jesus was amazed at his great faith. You know what a hard look in the mirror is for me? Is when I ask myself, is Jesus ever amazed at my great faith. Is he ever amazed by what I'm trusting him for? Is he ever amazed at what I am praying about? Is he ever amazed at what my heart is inclined to do? So that's one. Jesus is amazed at great faith. The second passage we see in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is amazed at a lack of faith. Mark chapter 6 verse 1, Jesus left that part of the country, and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? They're seeing amazing things. Their response is is amazing to me. Then they scoffed. (laughs) How do you see all these amazing things and then scoff? I don't know how you do that. That's what they did. And they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Remember, they also said, when did he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles, miracles of which they themselves have never performed, and yet they would not believe. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. 
And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. I mean, what a day. What if we had that on a Sunday morning, by the way? Listen, we only had a few sick people get healed in, uh, in worship. You know, what did that happen here? Be like, whoa, that's amazing. Because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Jesus is amazed at great faith and Jesus is amazed at a lack of faith. Even though they saw, they didn't trust. Even though they believed in the things that their eyes told them, they would reject him. What I want to share with you today is what does it look like to have big faith? And I want to caution us just for a moment because, as I said, typically when a pastor starts talking about big faith, he's got an agenda. And I want to tell you, I don't have an agenda. There's not an agenda that's going to pop up at the end of all of this. My agenda is that we hear from God, we believe God, and we make big steps for the kingdom of God. We're going to do that as a church. But if we only do that as a church and you don't do that as an individual, you are missing out on living a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. The reality is most churches believe that the only big things that happen for the kingdom happen in the context of something led by a church staff. And yet when we look in Scripture, that is not how it worked. That is not how it worked. What's Jesus going to say about our faith? Do we believe enough to be saved, but we don't believe enough to try something that could impact the world for his kingdom? Do we believe enough that we're going to be able to eat our next meal, but we don't believe enough that we can help somebody else eat their next meal? What does our faith say about us? Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let me say that again. And I want you to, I want you to hear this and I want you to think about this, not just over the next week, but for the rest of your lives. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen, you know, reach up and touch the chair in front of you. Just touch it. What is seen what is felt. When you look around, when you go out in your car and you sit in your car, whenever you go somewhere else and you get a meal and somebody brings you food and you're going to eat that food in this body in which you dressed this morning, (laughs) what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, those who love science and reject the idea that God is at work would say that all those things happen, came into being without any spiritual nature or any spiritual involvement. They just happened. And yet what Paul tells us in Hebrews is that everything that has made was made out of things that were not visible. Everything is spiritual. Everything is supernatural. Now I want you to imagine that. Last week we talked about what happened following Palm Sunday. What happened following Jesus coming out of the grave and the disciples beginning the church. We talked about Pentecost and the reality. The Holy Spirit now came and rested on them and indwelled them. I want you to imagine this. As we look through all of those symbols of the Old Testament, what we found is that God was slowly reinventing us or slowly healing us and slowly bringing us more of his presence. In the tabernacle 
into the temple, Jesus walking on the earth, and then the Holy Spirit actually living within us. Jesus described it as the helper that was going to come and help us, was going to live within us. His presence is within us. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. The very thing working to create all that we see, the chair that you reach and touch in front of you, your body, your clothes, your car that you're going to get into, the food that you're going to eat, there is more to it than just the physical nature of what you see. It was all created. And the same power that created all things is the power that's living within you. So why is it that we do not feel empowered as followers of Jesus? Why do we go to our jobs defeated? Why do we look at our families and say, ah, this is as good as it's ever going to get? Why do we look at our future and fear it? We are empowered by the very same force that created all things. All things. Nothing that has been made was made out of things that are visible. You are empowered. So not only is Jesus amazed at great faith and amazed at a lack of faith, did you know that you cannot please God without big faith? Did you know that? Just a few verses later, verse 6 in Hebrews 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Truth is, is that if you and I are not having faith in not only our relationship with God, but what God wants to do with us in this world, how can we please Him? We please Him, we try to please Him by not doing terrible things, right? We try to please Him, but when we do terrible things, we don't ever do them again. We try to please Him by coming to church or by reading our Bible or by what, you know, knocking on doors every now and again. And it's not saying that faith is the only thing that we do that pleases God. But without it, we cannot please Him. Let me ask you this. Right now, what are you dreaming for? Praying for? Believing for? Hoping for? Having faith for? Right now. You don't have to to yell it out. But I want you to sit here and consider this. See, most of us, the way we live our lives is I just want to do okay, right? I want to do okay at work. I want our families to be fed. I want my kids to grow up and be decent people and be okay and come visit me after they move away because some of us are, you know, realizing that that's coming to a, uh, it's coming soon. Jake's graduating high school. Aaron's graduating high school. Matt's graduating high school. I think that's it. We have any others graduating high school? No, that's it for now. I want him to be a decent guy, and I believe he is. He is, thank you. I want him to love Jesus, and I believe he does. I want that for my other kids. You know what else I want? I want a meal three times a day. Anybody else say amen? amen. All right, I want a house with a roof over my head. It doesn't have to be fancy, but I don't want to live out in the rain, right? Or the cold, or the heat. I want those things. You know what? I like to have a car and, and have a subwoofer in it, right? Because that's necessary, Okay not for you that's not your thing that's fine I, i'd like to have those things okay you know i'd like to go on a nice trip 
um, pretty often, like every week. But it's not going to happen, and I'm okay with that. I've come to grips with that. I'd like for that to happen, okay? What are you dreaming for? What are you praying for? What are you believing for? What are you hoping for? What are you having faith for? Now let me ask you this. For all the things you're praying for, hoping for, believing for, having faith for, if they all came true, how would the world be different other than for you? Think about it. If God answered every one of your prayers... If God, every time you tried something, and if it worked out, you know, some of us, we have problems because God let way too much work out for us, right? He should have just let us fail miserably. <laughs> but let's just say everything you ever tried worked. Everything you prayed for, God answered. Would anyone notice but you? You see, we live in a life where I want those things for myself. I want our family to be happy and healthy and have a long life. I want good friends, and and I want them to have good lives too. But God is calling us to more than just that. God is calling us to more than just having a roof over our heads, more than just having a car with a good subwoofer in it, you know, right? He's calling us to more. Would anyone notice that every one of your prayers have been answered? And if I'm honest, sometimes I would just have to say, no, but I would notice, but no one else would. Most people want to live their lives well. They want to have a good job. They want to make a good living. They want to have a happy family. And most of our prayers are aimed toward those end. Most of our faith is, how am I going to pay for something? How are we going to deal with this sickness? I want to encourage you to elevate your understanding of what God wants to do through you. Because if you are sitting here thinking, what can God do through me? I'm going to tell you, you do yet, not yet know God. Because if God can make a man walk out of a grave, what can he do through you? One of the stories that I love in the Old Testament is the story of Nehemiah. And I want you to look at this story and I want to ask yourself, where are you in this? It's a common the common story of vision. I just want to read the first few verses of chapter 1. And I want you to look at not only what moved Nehemiah, but his response to God as a result. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 1. It happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa the citadel. This is Nehemiah. That Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, just to give you some context, throughout the Old Testament, there are several times. God said, you follow me, things will be good. You stop following me, you follow their idols, and things are going to go bad. And whenever they would go bad, usually it meant the nation was overrun. Now, the way that you overrun a nation to make sure they can't come back and fight you is you destroy anything that they have to fight with. And then you take a group like the Jews who think that, listen, we just need to, we need to all just intermarry with each other. We do not need to have any outside influence. We need to make sure that our faith is stay pure within us. Well, you take them and then you take all of their, you separate their people and marry them off to your own people. Now they're interbred within other groups. Why would they ever go back to being a Jewish nation? Their kids are now parts of both nations. 
And they'll have to go back to war to be a Jewish nation again. And so they tore down their walls. They brought them out. They exiled them from their homes. They helped them to disperse throughout their own culture so that they would forget what God had told them. And Nehemiah gets word. As they come back and they tell him the shape of what's going on, the scope of how bad it is. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Can I just ask you, is there something that God is saying, putting on your heart that you just can't get off of your heart, out of your mind, that causes you to sit and weep for days? I mean, is there? I said, verse 5, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. What does he do? He doesn't go get to work. See, this is what I do. It took a while for me to figure this out because Dietrich thought she was getting a lot better when she got me, right? <laughs> and so I figured things out now. We're, see, we, this year will be our 25th. So we our 25th anniversary this year. Yeah, I know. I haven't gotten rid of her yet. She has, you know, she is long-suffering. I will tell you that. She is long-suffering. But I remember she would get upset about things, and she'll joke with our kids. You know, Deidre can cry at the drop of a hat. She'll tell you that. And she, she just emotively feels lots of things, and she shares them. And uh, it's, one of, it's just one of her endearing qualities. But she would want to come talk to me sometimes. And what do you think I would want to do when she would tell me something that was bothering her? Thank you for all the women in the room. The men are like, I don't know. What did you do? I don't know. I know what I would do. I would fix it. Because that's what we do. We fix things. And usually, guys, this is, a, this is just a, a bonus for Mother's Day next week. Anybody hear that? Guys, Mother's Day is when? Next week. She would literally sit down and say, I want to talk to you about something. I just want you to listen. I do not need you to fix it. I'd be like, well, why do you want to talk to me about it then? You know, like, what's, what's my purpose in this conversation then? That's what, that's what I do. I fix that. I just know what to do. And I fix it, which is not true, but that's how I felt. So what Nehemiah could have done is he could have just said, that's a problem. We need to go fix this. And yet that's not what he did. He was mourning. He was hurting. He was burdened. This is not good. There are people that are hurting. There's a whole nation that's devastated. I know what God has promised. I know what God said. And he prayed But he didn't just pray. He prayed unceasingly day and night. He was so burdened by this. What burdens you to the degree that you have to pray about something day and night? What burdens you? Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. We're going to find that Nehemiah does not need help. 
Nehemiah, as he says at the end of this passage, is cupbearer to the king. And if you remember some of our studies of Joseph, cupbearer to the king is a pretty darn good position. Unless something happens to the king, then you're in big trouble. (laughs) He would literally present the food to king. The king here is King Artaxerxes. He present the food. He would at times taste it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. But this person in this position was so trusted by the king, he would not only trust him with his life, he trusted him with the affairs of the kingdom. And so he would rule the kingdom in the absence of the king. He had position, wealth, and power. Nehemiah needed nothing. When I look at my own life, we're not the most well-off. We're not just swimming in it. But as I look around the world we are in Nehemiah's position. We have so much. And even the things that we feel that we need, we don't really need. But see, for Nehemiah, it wasn't about him. His prayers weren't about what he needed. Because for Nehemiah, he looked. He says, I pray before you day and night. For the people of Israel, your servants. He looked around at what the world needed and he was burdened for the world. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I, my father's house, have sinned. This is a place of coming back in repentance, saying, you said if we would follow you, we'd be okay. If we did not follow you, we would not be okay. I'm, I'm coming repentant on behalf of the nation of Israel to say we have sinned, we walked away, we deserved what we got. I'm coming to you to ask your forgiveness and to restore us. Verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. This is what their experience is now. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my home dwell there. He's praying that the nation would be restored. Now, I want you not to miss the significance of this, that the cupbearer to the king who's in charge of the kingdom is saying, I want to rebuild the city that you already conquered so that they could withstand a siege. You don't say that when you're cupbearer to the king. You don't basically say, I want to build up the defenses and the armory to a group that could attack you. That doesn't usually help your job security. And yet that's what he's praying for. He's not yet talking to the king about it yet. But that's what he's praying for. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. In other words, I got to go talk to the king. Please give me favor as I go do this because literally I could die at the end of this conversation. Now I was cupbearer to the king. As we look through the story, the story is so great. And many of you have probably studied this. You've studied it talking about leadership, talking about vision. It is a great textbook for vision and leadership. I just want us to look at what drove him. His heart was broken for the things that break God's heart. He couldn't stop praying about it. He couldn't stop thinking about it. For a while, he couldn't stop crying about it. He was so burdened by the things that burdened God 
and what was going on with people around him. That he had to act. He had to act. Now what we're going to find, interestingly, do you know who King Artaxerxes was married to? Somebody knows. Except when you at, put you on the spot, right? Does anybody ever ask you a question? You know the answer, but they put you on the spot, and you're like, uh, what's your name? Uh, uh, you know, what's your child's name? Uh, do I have kids? What? You know, it's, uh, you know, go back and study, and you'll find that he's married to a queen named Esther. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Queen Esther, what's so interesting about Queen Esther is that uh, the king kicks out his wife because she's tired of him partying all the time, and he decides he needs a new wife, so he throws a beauty pageant, you know, looking for all the deeper meaning and the deeper understanding of what a woman is. He throws a beauty pageant and says, I gotta, I gotta have a new wife. And so Esther gets collected and she enters into the beauty pageant and she wins. Literally takes a year of prep for this beauty pageant. It's an amazing story. Go back and read it if you've not read it. And so Esther comes in and then at the same time, one of the king's right hand men want to absolutely destroy all of Esther's people, which are, guess who? The Jews. And so her uncle comes up and says, listen, you got to get in here. You got to do, you got to rescue us. She's like, I can't do anything here. I, I can't help here. I, there's no, there's no way for me to get in and, and do anything. I'm going to lose my life if I try to rescue our people. And long story short, she prays the exact same prayer as Nehemiah. I'm burdened for my people. Please give me favor. And over a process, we're not going to go through the story of Esther today, but over a process of inviting him over to dinner time and time again, which is an interesting cultural thing there. But time and time again, eventually he chooses her. Not only does he choose her as his queen, actually he had already chosen her as his queen before that started, but not only has he chosen her as his queen, she finally says, I need you to help save my people. And he says, yes. And the interesting thing for Nehemiah, if we were talking to Nehemiah, would be to say, look, God has been working towards this prayer since before you even knew to pray it. Esther was installed long before this. Can you imagine Nehemiah is having to go before the king and say, listen, my, my, my home is in ruins. The wall is destroyed. The people that are left are just, they're falling prey to raiding parties that are being killed. They're being slaughtered. I, I, I got to do something. And yet when he's sitting there hearing this all from Nehemiah, guess who's sitting right next to him? But Esther. See, we read those stories and we go, oh, that is so amazing. I mean, just look at what God did. I love reading these stories. We should do a sermon series on that. And yet we never make the connection that God still does that. Today. And he wants to do that through you. Not just you as a part of this congregation. See, this is, what I, this is where I don't want to go with this. Not just as a part of this congregation. You as a follower of Jesus, this is what he wants your status quo to be in life. And yet we so many times feel defeated and empty and worthless. We have no self-confidence whatsoever. And listen, I'm not encouraging self-confidence. I'm encouraging confidence in what the Holy Spirit is empowering you for. If my confidence is in myself, I got none. I'm not good at a lot of stuff. But my confidence can be in the one who created things because everything that's been created was not created by things that were visible. He is still working in those things today. What are you hoping for? What are you dreaming for? What are you believing for? What are you praying for? What do you mourn for? When you look at the world around you, yes, 
If it doesn't look like we're going to have our next meal, you better believe I'm going to be spending a lot of time praying about our next meal. Yes. We've got a big hole in the roof. Yes. And I don't have the money to fix it. I'm going to be praying about it. Yes. Yes, something's going on in our family. And I'm asking God to intervene. You better believe it. Yes, I'm going to be praying for those things. Don't let those be the only things you pray for. Because if you are, I find God often does not answer the prayers of those who only are concerned about themselves. Be concerned about yourselves. But in the context of the rest of the world. This is what we're not good at as Americans. We're not good at this. Because every message we get says, you are an individual. You are good enough on your own. You don't need anybody. And we've taken that, we've taken that bait hook, line, and sinker and walked away from trusting God for great big things. When we read about these things in the Old Testament, understand that is the same God that's working today. And he's not in a tabernacle. He's not in a temple. He's in you. You are the temple of the living God. We've got to start living empowered because God is with us. So how do we have big faith? Listen, uh, this is not meant to be some kind of just motivational speech. And there's way more to this than just these things. But these things are crucial for having big faith. Number one, big faith requires big belief. You've got to believe got to believe. You can't wonder. I was a kid. I remember the first time I went off a high dive. Has anybody ever done that? I don't have a second. I don't even think there are many high dives around because, you know, probably a whole bunch of kids like me died on them because that's what I assumed was going to happen when I got up there. I mean, it really is hard to find one anymore. You can't even find a, you can't even have a diving board in most places. I remember the first time I got up there and I climbed up there and I was so excited and I looked over. I was like, what am I doing? We were visiting my aunt and uncle and they lived in this really nice neighborhood. And our neighborhood, we had a pool in our neighborhood, but it was like, you know, they took the diving board out because it was unsafe. But at this place, it was like, come, die at our pool. I mean, that was like <laughs> plastered on the gate when you walked up. And I walked up there and I looked down and I literally thought, I'm going to die. So I backed down the ladder. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. You want to lose a good view of yourself? Walk down a ladder from a high dive. No one thinks good of you. No one. Because every other kid is already on the ladder waiting for you to get down. Everybody's got to climb down, right? You know, and then here I come, you know, shaking, coming down the ladder. Well, I went and sat and watched for a long time. I, I don't know. I don't remember how old I was. I was probably seven years old, six, seven years old. I wasn't real old. I, probably not old enough to be on it, to be honest. But that was a different time, right? Parents were still young. They could have more kids. <laughs> and uh, I eventually climbed that ladder again. And I wasn't about to ask them to get off the ladder again. I was like, I... I you know, I'll just have to jump onto the concrete if I'm going to get down this time, and that will be worse. So I got over there, and I sat, and if you've ever done, I didn't sit, I stood, and I stood at the edge, and you know, when you get up high like that, things start shaking, and you don't know why. It's like your knees start shaking, and you're, you're just like, I don't, what's happening here, you know? Is somebody shaking this thing? No, it's you. <laughs> and I remember saying to myself, you can do this, you can make this. And I jumped off, 
and I died. No, I didn't. <laughs> Clearly, I didn't die. Clearly, I didn't die. I believed I wouldn't die. Let me tell you something. If I can believe I'm not going to die and jump off a high dive, I can believe that God is going to work because I've seen all the ways he's done it before. Big faith requires big belief. In your big faith and your big belief, let me ask you this. What is possibly God saying to you to do for the kingdom in this world that no one else is being told to do that? Some of you know what it is. Some of you are already on this passion. You're already, you're just sitting here going, yep, 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 yep. Or if you're not from the South, yes, 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 right? But you already know you're on this path. You're excited about it. You like hearing about it. What is God calling you for the kingdom in this world that only you are meant to do? Do you believe that he would actually do that? Do you believe that he's capable of using you? Do you believe that your collection of brokenness and your strengths and your weaknesses, that God can actually bind them together to do something supernatural around you? Do you believe it? Because if you don't, then you've not been paying attention. When God comes into us through the Holy Spirit, we are empowered by the living God and I think about the parable of the talents. Sometimes we look at the parable of the talents, we talk about our gifts, we talk about our skills, we talk about our abilities. But what are you doing with the Holy Spirit that has been deposited within you? Is he just there as your guardian angel? Or is he there wanting to do something with you, in you, for those around you? I look back at some of the steps of faith we took I, we were going to start journey. I there was um, my parents were they were already active in church planning. They had helped churches get started all around the country, and they were regularly traveling to meet with pastors and church planners. and And uh, and so one in particular had been a super successful church planner. Even today, he he still tell, teaches people to to plant churches, and he's this big name in the church planning world. And because he knew my parents, and they had helped him with one of his churches at one time, he came down and had coffee with me. And he sat down there and he said, my best friend tried to start a church here and, it, and he couldn't do it. It didn't make it. What makes you think you can? It's like, this is not the direction I thought this conversation was going to go. <laughs> he said, I don't think Chattanooga is ready for a new church. And at the time, there weren't new churches. I remember leaving that with a two feelings. One, like, what in the world was that? I, this, I am about to make the biggest mistake of my life. And the second was, oh, yeah, I'll show you. You ever have those moments? No, you all don't because you don't have that, you know, rebellious attitude in you probably. But I was like, this city needs something. And, and, and there are great churches here, but this city needs something different. It's 11 years different. The city's changed. The culture's changed. Churches have changed. Lots of new churches have come now. But I believed I didn't believe that I just wanted to start a church and that God would show up. I believed that God was saying, you're supposed to start a church. Now, whether that church lasts for one year or 10 or 11 years now, or it lasts 150 years or however long it lasts, is immaterial. God said, do this thing. And many of you came alongside and made it happen. You have to have big belief to have big faith. Do you believe God is capable 
as we've been talking, do you believe God is speaking to you? I'm so troubled, especially in the South. We are so programmed to do church. We've stopped believing God will speak to us. Now, I'm not saying God's going to, you know, change the gospel. The scripture tells us anyone who seeks to change the gospel is in deep trouble. (laughs) But he speaks to us about our place in this world and what it looks like to follow him and what he's calling us to. You've got to believe that he still does that. And he is powerful enough to accomplish what he says he's going to accomplish. I will tell you, this church has been harder than I ever thought it was going to be. And if I had known how hard it was going to be, I'd be like, uh, never mind. Let's, let's not do this. I mean, he said it couldn't happen, so I'm just going to go with what he said. But I couldn't do that because I felt like God had said something to me. Do you believe God is capable and still speaking? Do you believe God wants to use you for something outside of these walls? Do you believe that God wants more than for just you to know Him? We started a youth group. Had a great youth concert last night. The band was up here killing it last night. David and Stephanie and Stephanie and Josh. You know, you got to get all the Stephanie straight around here in leadership, but... And they came together, and it was just a great night. Um, and David was just talking about some of ours that are graduating. And we, st- we first talked to David and Stephanie. There were two youth, <laughs> two youth, uh, two, Jake and Aaron. That was it. And so they came, and I don't know how many were there. I mean, it's not like we were, like, you know, we had 500 people come to know the Lord last night. Right? You ever read those posts? You're like, gosh, I'm such a failure, you know. Only had 200 people at church, but we had 500 decisions for salvation, right? <laughs> I always question that. But, uh, but man, God showed up. God has showed up over the years. Some of the mission things we've done, we've done around, around the world. One, one Christmas, gosh, we built six wells in India and Nepal. And funded 40 future church planners to be trained how to go start a church in their village. That was one year we did that. Do we believe God can still do amazing things? Do we believe that we've come as far as we're going to come as a church? This is it? Is God not speaking to us anymore? Is God not speaking to you? Are you waiting for me to tell you what God is saying to you? If you Listen, I just got to tell you, one of my big pet peeves as a pastor are people that wait for me to tell them what God wants them to do. Can I just tell you, first time, first time I ever became a senior pastor, a man stood there, his name was Bob Jessup. I remember him, I remember this moment as if it were, you know, this morning. He said, can you look over this congregation and, and just can you tell about what every person's gift is and what their contribution in the church should be. And I was like, what? You know, like, I've, we didn't cover this in seminary. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. But I, but I knew I'd better be on it. I was like, no, I can't do that. And, and he, he kind of wrote me off after that. I've never understood why we give that power to somebody else. Why would you give that power to me? I'm not saying that God doesn't say that I need to share something with you. 
But why would you give that power to me? People will come up. I would, just, I would be serving in the church. I just wish somebody would come and ask me. I'm like, golly, bum. I don't do that in any area of my life. Why would we do that here? What do you mean you're waiting for somebody to ask you? I mean, do you give everybody permission to tell you how to do other things? I didn't get dressed today because nobody called and told me I needed to get dressed today. <laughs> Man, I haven't eaten. Would somebody please tell me to eat lunch today? I'm hungry. I need somebody to tell me to do it. Let me tell you something. I do not want to deny the purpose of strategy or leadership within the church. But if you're waiting for somebody else to tell you how to follow Jesus, I'm going to tell you, you will never get there. You will never get there. I don't want you to walk out of here listening to me say something like that and be like, oh, such a Christian, because I don't think you would. I think you probably have that rebellious streak like me and you just get mad at me. But I want you to walk out here saying, what does he want for and from me? Don't put it in the hands of somebody else. I'll be honest, I have done that. We first started the church. Gosh, we read so many books and we tried to do all the things the experts told us to do. We found out none of it works, not for us at least. So we had to just kind of abandon the books and kind of just seek God for it. We learn through that. We're still learning through that. All right, I'm running out of time. I need to move on. Second thing. Oh, also, Jesus does not expect you to attempt big things by yourself. He says this in Acts 1.8. You will receive, what's the word? You will receive what? Okay, for three of you, got it. Okay, everybody else now, together, you will receive what? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. You will receive power. Listen, say right now within this room, God has given me power. Say it. God has. Okay. That is the, you all need some coffee or something. All right. Listen, say it and believe it. God has given me power. Say it. We need to live this way. We need to live this way. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. If you know Jesus Christ, you have received power. All right? Big faith requires big belief. Number two, big faith requires big prayer. This is what Nehemiah started with. Your prayers need to grow. They need to move outside the sphere of just your immediate whatever. Work, your immediate family. I mean, work is a good thing to reach out to. I mean, that's a good next circle. But there's even more circles out there that you can extend to. Big faith requires big prayer. I remember this isn't a real spiritual thing, but I, when I was in high school, a friend of mine and I, we wanted to join the tennis team, and we just would goof off and play around. And I knew I wasn't a great player, and so I went to the tryouts. And I had my racket. I had a good racket. I'd been using it for, for a few years. I felt good with it. But my serve was not great. And uh, <laughs> so at tryouts, there, there's like, I don't know, six courts there. And at tryouts, I go to hit a ball and I hit the, I hit the ground. And I've got a graphite racket, which like now you're like, okay. But then that would be like, whoa, <laughs> you know, like, that's a big deal. I hit my racket. It broke in two places right on the edge, and it curved my racket head down. 
and we were just moving to serving. I was like, I am toast. God, please help me. Please help. Now, this is, I'm not saying this, this is not necessarily elevating your prayer. This is pretty selfish, self-centered. But I did pray, God, please help me. Please help me. Amazing thing. I've never served better my entire life. I was like, how can I, can I use this racket like all the time now? The, the curvature of the head was perfect. I hit, I was the best server out there. The, literally, the coach came by and he was like, man, you're an awesome server. I know, look at my racket, it's broken. I, you know, it's, I am even better than you think I am, which is not true, but that's what I wanted him to think. I'm not saying God broke my racket, but I'm not saying he didn't either, right? <laughs> I prayed about it. How much more does he want to do over things that really matter in the world than my stupid tennis racket? Big faith requires big prayer. Everything significant God has ever done in my life has involved prayer. Everything. Everything. Big faith not only requires big prayer, big faith requires big risk. It's going to cost you something. Comfort. It's going to cost you financially. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you at times reputation. It's going to cost you something. But big faith requires big risk. Whenever we were in college, I went on a mission trip for the summer to a place called Ganado, Arizona. It was a Navajo Indian reservation, and I was going with some friends from college. Do you all remember the, the hantavirus back in the early 90s? It swept the nation. I mean, people were getting it, contracting it. They thought they had the flu. They'd go to the hospital, and within 24 hours, they would be, you know, dead. And so the night we're about to leave, the night we're about to leave, all over CNN, the hantavirus, where Ground Zero, where Ganado, Arizona, I kid you not. I don't know which took more faith, me or my parents for letting me go, but we all called, we talked, we talked to the people in charge of the trip, and we said, we're going. And we went. Within 30 minutes of arriving, we had a CDC scientists meeting with us, talking about the precautions, talking about the dangers, talking about the signs we need to look for. I mean, it was serious stuff. The compound we were staying on was a medical compound, and everyone in the area that was contacting this virus was coming here. So they had a quarantined area of this uh, medical you know, compound, which r- literally means rural podunk Small hospital is what medical compound means, by the way. If you ever see that, that's what it means. They didn't have the resources. It was a small little hospital. They had quarantined office section. We ate all our meals 200 yards from the medical compound. (laughs) But we believe God told us to go. A long story short, I didn't die there either. I know (laughs) you're amazed. That was one of the most formational trips of my entire life. Now, I would love to say 5,000 people came to know Christ. And I could say that. You wouldn't know the difference. (laughs) But that didn't happen. But it taught me to trust God. And it was going to be okay. If we got it, if we didn't get it. The day that we found out how you could get it, because they hadn't discovered how people were getting it yet, they were coming from mouse droppings. We had literally spent the entire morning clearing out an old football shed for a high school on the, in the reservation that had mouse droppings all over it. We were like, we are the 
luckiest or dumbest people on the face of the planet. Big faith requires big risk. And I'll tell you, I wouldn't take that back for anything. Now, it was risk that I didn't have to pay. But it was risk. God, God taught me something through that. Big faith requires big risk. It may mean time with people. It may mean some people getting upset with you. It may mean sharing your faith with somebody that you're pretty sure they'll never talk to again after you share your faith with them. It may mean quitting a job. It may be moving across the country. It may be moving across the world. Big faith requires big risk because remember, this is about the kingdom. This is not about us. And number four, big faith will change your life. I want you to imagine that you try something that you think there's no way if God doesn't show up. And then he does. I just can't imagine if that happens for you that you're going to go, well, that was cool. I'm glad that happened. I'd be like, what's next? What hill can we take next? What group that's suffering can we help next? (laughs) Who's hungry that we can go feed next? Because faith changes you. It changes the way you live. When you see God work, you want to see Him work more. It creates in us boldness, belief, courage, anticipation of what He's going to do. Let me just encourage you. I don't know what your next act of faith is, but I, I pray it may be small, but in your mind it's huge. You may decide that you're going to you're going to start praying about what should I have a passion about? That is an act of faith. You may have an inkling of what it is, and yet you know what it's going to cost, and you may be thinking, I can't do that. And you may, it may be time to start saying, I can do that. I can pay that cost. I can do it. Maybe your, your act of faith right now is, is simply in serving. I know what it's like to come in and go through the motions. Maybe your act of faith is coming in and saying, I'm not going through the motions today. I'm investing in in these people. I'm investing in these kids. I'm praying for these kids before I get here. I'm prepared before I walk in the door. Whenever those kids get in here, they are going to be loved. They are going to be cared for. I am going to show them God in every way that I know how to do that. I'm investing in these kids. I'm not just going to come go through an hour, hour and a half. I'm going all in. An act of faith may be to become generous. An act of faith may be that it's time for us to start just coming to church and maybe we need to start giving to the church. That's an act of faith. Because I don't know anybody. Maybe if you're here, please come see me. I want to talk to you later. But I don't know anybody that money's not an issue for. I mean, if you got more than you know what to do with, I got some ideas. And I would like to have coffee with you and you're buying, right? (laughs) But maybe your next act of faith is just beginning to recognize that you can do more by following Jesus with less by giving more away. And yes, we, I give outside of our church. You should give outside of our church. But yes, I give to our church. You should give to our church. It's part of what God has called us to. Perhaps your next act of, act of faith is to begin to give financially to this church. Your act of faith may be as simple as saying, I just want to follow Jesus. 
I don't know what that's going to cost me. I don't know. After this sermon, I may not want to do that. But maybe that's your next act of faith. Let me leave you with this. What are you believing for in big faith? What are you believing for in big faith? If you can't answer that question, can I just tell you, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It just means you haven't heard it yet. Now, I don't know why you haven't heard it. Maybe because he's not told you yet. Or maybe he's been telling you and you've been rejecting it. What are you believing for in big faith? Let me tell you what I'm believing for. I'm out of time. But let me tell you what I'm believing for in big faith for us. Let me tell you the things I'm most excited for for us moving forward. I'm excited that this August we're going to be partnering with another church to talk about race in our city and how can we repair the division between races in our city. I'm stoked about that. And it's not just my conversation. It's our conversation because you're going to be there too. When we come together and we say, listen, we're having dinner. We're going to put you around a table and you're going to be talking and it's not going to be safe. But we're going to love each other because we all love Jesus and we're going to figure this out. I'm excited because right now churches are coming together all over our city and places and like it is not in many places. There are very few places where the church has said we will work together for the benefit of the city. And right now there are many conversations about coming together and doing that. I am super excited about that. Will it happen? I don't know. It's the beginning stages. We're meeting with pastors. Things are beginning to come together. People are, things are beginning to move. Is it going to happen? I don't know. But this is what Jesus said. I want them to be one just as, as the Father and I are one. I want them to be united. I want them to go out and I want people to see that they are my followers because they love each other. I mean, it's just the Bible. Let's do it. I'm excited about that. It's coming together. There's very few places in our country that it's happened. I'm excited that we are currently building some relationships with two other churches in Red Bank for the purpose of going out and serving our community. Church is working together. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the number of you that come when we do work days. Widows Harvest, what other, other work days we have. We've got some more opportunities coming up. One, Widow's Harvest approached us and said, we have, we have two ladies in your area and they need somebody to care for their yard over the summer, but they're outside of our service area. Can you all help? So we're going to be partnering with Mission Red Bank, which is an Anglican church just down the road that meets at the meeting house to help care for these two widows in our community. That just It will take, literally take 45 minutes to, to, to take care of them if two people work together. We're going to split the load with them. And so we're going to be talking to you about coming alongside and helping to care for some of these lawns. Is somebody going to get saved because you cut somebody's grass? I don't know. But I'll tell you this. The Holy Spirit is going to move through that because this is what he said to do. Pure and undefiled religion is to care for widows and orphans. Guys, we're moving into some incredible ways. Some of that we're going to do as a community. I don't have an agenda for this kind of talk other than you need to hear from God and you need to change the world because you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I will tell you what I believe from what I read in Scripture is he's gonna, He is going to link all of our passions and our callings together until we, as the body of Christ, change Chattanooga. Not by ourselves. But that's how the body works. 
your passion, your passion, your passion, your passion, all works together for a common place. That's God's job. What are you believing for in big faith? Jesus wants you to be passionate about the things he's passionate about, him and other people. Let's elevate our passions to go beyond ourselves. Father, God, I thank you for the people in this room that I know are living this out every day. I pray for those who want to live it out and they're nervous. They don't feel like you can work in them. They don't feel like they're equipped. They don't feel like they're good enough. Someone's been telling them they're not good enough and it's not been you. Father, I pray that you would just show us what it looks like and help us to faithfully follow. In all these directions as a church body, I pray that you would guide us so that we are doing what you call us to, not just what sounds good to us. I pray for those in this room and they are passionate about something and they just need someone to come alongside them and encourage them. Say, I will help you accomplish this. For some, they are looking at great risk and great cost. But God, you are worth it. You are worth it. Help us to follow where you call, to go where you lead. Help us to have big faith, big belief, pray big prayers that our lives and the lives of those around us be changed because we see you do the impossible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.